I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Yummy burgers, fried chicken sandwiches, french fries, perhaps a little ice cream. This is what we think of when we hear the words fast food. Fast food is an American staple, and boy do we love it. These havens that handle our cravings. But if we're being honest, when you go inside a fast food restaurant, they can be a little sketchy. Some may even say grimy. And that can tend to attract the wrong type of person. Someone who's out to cause harm, and today, we're not just talking about armed robbery or assault. On this list, we're looking at five terrifying fast food killers. Thanks for tuning in today. Please do share our podcast with your friends and subscribe to help our podcast grow. Thank you guys. And now, here are five terrifying fast food killers. Number five, Paul Reed Jr. The news features stories of fast food violence. Robbers clearing out cashiers, drunk people punching out diners or servers, and customers having meltdowns, just to mention a few. But there's nothing more unnerving than what happened back in 1997 when a lone man committed a string of killings inside restaurants in just a matter of months. This person was Paul Reed Jr., Originally from Richland Hills, Texas, Reed moved to Nashville, Tennessee in an attempt to pursue his career as a country music singer. His dream, however, faded out, and he ended up as a dishwasher at Shunny's Restaurant in Donaldson in February of 97. But aside from his musical aspirations, the Texas native had to deal with another thing, his temper. On February 15th of that year, Reed lost it, and he ended up throwing a plate at his co-worker. It was, of course, fired on the spot, but instead of moving past the incident, the frustrated musician dove into his hatred and decided to do the unthinkable. A day later, on February 16th, Reed entered a Captain D's restaurant on Lebanon Road, which wasn't far from Shunny's. 
He posed as someone looking for a job, and once inside, he pulled out a gun and forced 16-year-old Sarah Jackson, an employee, and her manager, 25-year-old Steve Hampton, into a cooler. He ordered them to lie down on the floor, and then he shot them execution-style. The shooter then grabbed everything from the cash register and fled. While the investigation was ongoing on March 23rd, Reed then entered the back door of a McDonald's in the Hermitage neighborhood of Nashville. With a gun in hand, the intruder forced four employees, Andrea Brown, Ronald Santiago, Robert Sewell, and Jose Antonio Gonzalez back into the store. And just like with the first incident, the killer shot the first three crew members dead. When his weapon jammed, Reed then stabbed Gonzalez 17 times and left him for dead. The last victim survived miraculously, but the perpetrator had quickly fled from the scene with over $3,000 in cash. Exactly a month later, Reed went to a Baskin-Robbins on Wilma Rudolph Boulevard in Clarksville, Tennessee. At gunpoint once again, he kidnapped 21-year-old Angela Holmes and Michelle Mace, who was 16, and he brought them to a park. Their bodies would later be discovered the next day, and it was a gruesome scene to behold with their throats slashed. By then, most of the fast food chains in the Nashville area were closing early, and some even requested police patrols around their vicinity. On June 25th, with his anger still not extinguished, Reed rushed the house of the Shunny's manager who had fired him. He wanted to kidnap the individual, but luckily the door was locked, thereby impending his attempts. Reed was subsequently arrested by Nashville police for the kidnapping attempt. This apprehension allowed the authorities to dig deeper into his past, and they were then able to link him to the murders at Captain D's McDonald's and Baskin-Robbins. He was charged and later on convicted on seven counts of first-degree murder, had it not been for Tennessee's anti-death penalty stance, he would have been executed back in 1999. In 2013, he was pronounced dead at Nashville General Hospital due to health complications. The family of the victims were obviously furious over what had transpired. However, though they didn't get the justice they so deserved, death still came to the one whom the public nicknamed the fast food killer. Number 4. William Smith Different killers employed different tactics to trap their prey. For William Smith, it was easy. He just had to bump the rear end of their cars, which would then force them to pull over. On April 7, 1984, police were called over reports of an abandoned car at an intersection in Salem, Oregon. Inquiries led them to a certain Catherine Redmond, who had actually borrowed the vehicle from her roommate after a campus frat party. The driver was missing, and her belongings were left untouched inside. And four days later, on April 11th, the body of the 18-year-old sorority girl was found discarded. The medical examination results indicated that she was sexually assaulted and ultimately died of strangulation. The investigation suggests that the victim's car was bumped by what witnesses recalled to be a Pontiac station wagon. 
Salem police quickly honed in their radar on William Smith, a former fry cook at a restaurant. His criminal history of several sexual harassments against women made him the prime suspect, and he, of course, also happened to drive the same late 1960s Pontiac. He was eventually arrested and put on trial for the killing, and by then, a gush of horrifying revelations came out. Aside from confessing to Redmond's murder, it was found out that he was also behind the disappearance of another Salem woman named Rebecca Ann Darling. Two months prior to Redmond's death in February, employees at a local convenience store in Salem reported Darling missing. Her car and other valuables were left in the parking lot. On March 25, 1984, Darling's decomposing body was found floating in the little putting river by a farmer. Like Redmond, she too had been assaulted and ultimately strangled to death. Witnesses saw her talking to a stranger before she went inside the establishment to begin her shift. An identikit was released and it held a resemblance to Smith. The man was eventually convicted for the two killings and was sentenced to life in prison. Meanwhile, Salem authorities had been working to solve two separate cold cases, one of Terry Monroe and the other of Sherry Ierly. On the night of February 12, 1981, Monroe, who worked as a clerk at a shoe center, went out to get a breath of fresh air from a night of dancing at what was then the Oregon Museum Tavern, a popular club in downtown Salem. She never went back inside, nor did she return home. Her body was eventually found on March 15th, and an autopsy revealed she had died of homicidal asphyxiation. Ireley, on the other hand, was an 18-year-old courier for Domino's Pizza. She disappeared on the evening of July 4th, 1982, after being sent to deliver three large pizzas to a remote location on Riverhaven Drive. The teenager was never found, and her remains are still missing to this day. In 2007, the Marion County Sheriff's Office decided to reopen the two cases, Their eyes were once again set on Smith, who at this time was already incarcerated. In that year, the inmate was convicted and given another life sentence after confessing to Irely's abduction and reported murder. Half a decade later, in 2012, the serial killer then admitted responsibility to Monroe's murder, whereby he also got a life sentence for it. Though Smith, who is now 63, is likely to serve only one life sentence, family and loved ones of the victims were appeased that he's at least being held accountable for each of the sinister crimes he committed. Number 3. Mitchell Sims Grievances at work happen quite often, especially if employees are not happy in their workplace. It can cause people to ultimately quit or turn into verbal or even worse, physical altercations. However, Mitchell Sims was the kind of person who took his grudge way too far. In 1985, Sims confronted the management at a Domino's Pizza franchise in Hanahan, South Carolina, where he worked after he had realized that his bonus payments were reduced. He quit and left the place, bringing with him that scorching kind of hatred that can't be extinguished, even with blood. 
On December 3rd of that same year, the disgruntled employee returned to his former workplace, where he found two staffers, Gary Melk and Christopher Zur. Both were 24 years old. Sims pulled out his gun, looted the store's safe, and then he shot the crew members execution style. After the incident, the shooter then returned home and simply went to sleep. Zur died on the spot, but Melk managed to drive himself to the Hanahan police station and told authorities that it was Mitch Sims. Melk eventually succumbed to multiple gunshot wounds and died days later, but not before letting them know about Mitch. With his name all over the news now, the gunman quickly made an escape and traveled to California with his girlfriend, Ruby Paget. A week after the first shooting incident, Sims ordered a Domino's pizza to be delivered to his hotel room in Glendale. As soon as he received the food, Sims then killed the delivery man, John Harrigan, by drowning him in the bathtub. It was a horrifying sight to behold, with the victim's hogtied body submerged in the tub, his mouth stuffed with a washcloth and a pillowcase over his head. Sims and Paget then stole Harrigan's delivery truck and went to the Domino's shop where he had ordered the food. The two psychotic runaways then tied the employees up who were working at that time and took all the day's earnings. Police found the victims in a situation wherein they had to stand on their toes to avoid hanging themselves to death. The murder spree would have continued had the lovers not been caught on that same month in Las Vegas. They were found after the stolen van was discovered abandoned at a parking lot near the place where the killer supposedly hid. Paget was tried and later sentenced to life in prison for her involvement in Harrigan's murder. Sims, on the other hand, was tried twice, first in California and then in South Carolina. Due to the severity of his crime, the convict was sentenced to death in both California and South Carolina courts in 1985, and currently he awaits his execution. Despite his attorney's defense, the killings were just but a crime of convenience. The people believed it was Sims' unfathomable hatred for the pizza chain that motivated him to kill so many employees. Number 2. John Taylor and Craig Godneau It wasn't exactly known how John Taylor and Craig Godneau became close, but their partnership had led them together to a bloody circumstance that would then in turn make them become some of the most vilified criminals New York City had ever seen. On May 24th of 2000, the pair went inside a Wendy's fast food restaurant at 40 12 Main Street in Flushing, Queens. They approached the outlet's manager, Gene August, and forced him to summon the remaining six employees on the pretense of having an emergency meeting. The unsuspecting crew did come to the manager's office, but much to their surprise found the two men, one of whom was armed with a gun. After being duct-taped, they were then led downstairs inside the walk-in freezer. The manager attempted to break free, and that's when chaos ensued. Taylor knocked the man down, stood over him, and fired his gun into the victim's head. God knew, like everyone else, was shocked. He even let out a scream himself. 
Supposedly, the plan was only to loot the store's stash, but obviously, things went south at that point. Taylor went on to shoot another employee, after which he handed the weapon over to God New, who was now trembling profusely. Shocked and dumbfounded, the reluctant robber felt his companion's hand holding him while telling him to just close his eyes and pull the trigger. In shock, God knew followed the orders, and he must have been in shock or consumed by madness because he went on to shoot the other four people in the head. Five of the seven Wendy staff members died that day, but two of them survived. One of the survivors even managed to wriggle free from the bind and call 911. Meanwhile, the killers fled with almost $3,000 in cash. Less than 48 hours after the chilling massacre, police were able to arrest Taylor and Brentwood. A short while after, the authorities confirmed they also had God New in custody. Marred with extensive criminal histories, the two were charged with multiple murders. In 2001, God New pleaded guilty. He was supposed to be sentenced to death, but the court deemed the convict mentally incapable, and so he got a life sentence instead. Meanwhile, Taylor got the death sentence in 2002, but due to certain legalities, his sentence was commuted to life in prison as well, a decision that drew negative reaction from the public, especially from the families of the victims. It's terrifying to think that these would-be robbers turned into mass murderers, killing five people who were only trying to make an honest living for themselves. Number 1. Henry Wallace Many serial killers pick their victims, and most of the time, they're strangers to them. Henry Wallace was the kind of murderer who preferred those whom he personally knew, and in his case, some of the victims were those he even had worked with. Originally from Barnwell, South Carolina, Wallace relocated to East Charlotte in North Carolina, but he carried with him a dark and murderous past. A hard-working man, he later found jobs at several fast food restaurants. He ended up working as a manager at a Taco Bell outlet near the now-defunct Eastland Mall in East Charlotte. On February 19, 1993, Wallace sexually assaulted and strangled to death Shauna Hawk, a college student. Hawk happened to work for the same Taco Bell joint where the killer was her supervisor. Four months later, Wallace did the same heinous deed to his co-manager, Audrey Spain, and her body was discovered three days later. Not only co-workers, but the South Carolina native also had an affinity for casual acquaintances, and on August 10, 1993, he raped, strangled, and later on burned the body of Valencia Jumper. The 21-year-old victim was his sister's friend. Calloused and not feeling the slightest remorse, he even attended Jumper's funeral just a few days after he had murdered her. On September 14th, he went to the apartment of Michelle Stinson, yet another Taco Bell co-worker. And like the others, Stinson suffered the same grim fate. The rapist even stabbed her to death in front of her own child. Throughout all this time, the entire community of East Charlotte was shaken to its core with the presence of the so-called East Charlotte Strangler. 
Still, though, the police were oblivious that it was Wallace the entire time. And so, in February of 1994, the man struck once again. He visited another one of his co-workers, Vanessa Mack, at her apartment, where he assaulted and later on choked her to death. And his crimes were still about to get more intense and terrifying. On March 8, 1994, he robbed, raped, and strangled Betty Bauckham. She was his girlfriend's co-worker at a local restaurant. On that same night, he headed over to the apartment that Bauckham lived at and murdered Brandy Henderson. It's hard to find somebody who compares to the brutality of this man when he raped the victim while she was holding her baby. As what he usually did, he then strangled Henderson and even proceeded to choke the child. Fortunately, though, the kid survived. Wallace claimed his last victim within that same month when he robbed, sexually assaulted, strangled, and stabbed Deborah Slaughter. She was also a co-worker of his girlfriend. He had already killed 10 people from East Charlotte between 1991 and 1994, and by this time, local authorities had already called the FBI to help solve the string of murders. His carelessness and boldness to commit such crimes eventually led to his arrest, though, on March 13, 1994. He not only confessed to the Charlotte murders, but also the one that he did in 1990 when he was still in Barnwell. His trial was swift, and after his conviction, he received the death penalty, of which the families of the victims awaited to be executed. In total, Wallace claimed the lives of 11 women. Had he not been apprehended, no one knows, really, how many others he would have killed. So that's going to do it, guys, for our podcast today. If you do enjoy what we have here, please do take the time to rate and share the content. If you're craving more intriguing true crime stories, then head over to our Everytown podcast. Over there, we serve up some of the craziest stories that have happened all around the country. Thank you so much for tuning in and your continued support, and I'll see you soon.